Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Jimmy Tinkle Show. Today, the greatest thing about doing this show is I get to reunite with friends. Uh, old friends, new friends, um, and I have the most fun conversations when I'm talking to people that I've known for a long time. This next gentleman I've known for a long time, Mr. Don White. Legendary folk singer, storyteller, entrepreneur, hustler, uh, open mic uh, MC, <laughs> always always breaking down a path for other performers. Over the pandemic, we did a ton of shows on Zoom. He turned me on to Brandon, uh, our crack tech person today, uh, Brandon O'Sullivan. And so, Don, I love you. Welcome to the show. I love you too, Jimmy. Thanks for thanks for having me. Appreciate you so much. Of course. Don is, uh, let's get this out of the way. I had to ask you four times what the date was. <laughs> Saturday night, March 9th, the Bull Run in Shirley, Massachusetts, folks. Yeah. Don is doing his annual birthday show. His birthday is on March 6th. On Saturday, March 9th, he'll be celebrating his 30th straight year at the beautiful Bull Run in Shirley, Massachusetts. You can get tickets at dawnwhite.net, and you can get tickets there. So, Don, how are you? I'm doing really well, Jimmy. Uh, how about you? Family good? Everybody all right? Everybody's good. Everybody's good. Uh, Brandon and I have been doing this show for about a year and a half now, and uh, it's going really well. And it's always great when we have people like yourself on to talk about what you're up to, your music, your new CDs, your DVDs, your books. I can't believe how prolific you are, Don. How many books do you have now? I have two two books um, and then um, 10, 10 CDs, I think. But I'm not making CDs no more. You have to be nobody under the age of 100 buys CDs anymore. So I, know. Um, so I think I'm just keep writing books. Like digital hasn't done to books what it did to music. People will right. still buy a book. So. so how long does it take you to write a book? Longer than I than I want to spend on right. it. It's hard. I'm really hard, actually. Yeah. Um, this this last one, I want to. Um, uh, renting a, a house. A friend of mine has a house in New, in the White Mountains, and I would go up there three or four days a week and just write with nobody bothering me. Because mm -hmm. unlike um, jokes or um, or songs, if you get interrupted in the middle of a of a chapter, it's hard to get back. Like even somebody just saying, "What do you want for lunch?" and you're like, "Okay, where was I?" And like you yeah. know, I'm trying to trying to connect um, something that I'm saying now with something that happened. 25 pages ago. So, um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to do it and, and not hate it, you know, and do it and feel like it's good, mm -hmm. but it there's, there's money in it. People will still buy them, you know? Right. Uh, so, right. We just had Colin Quinn on last week, comedian mm -hmm. Colin Quinn. He has, uh, he said something very similar about the, the effort that required that's required to, to actually sit down and write a book and the commitment he's done a couple. And then before that, we had Gary Goldman on a few weeks ago and he just got through with this book, his books. He, I think he said three years, three or four years it took him to do it. And Colin, the same thing, a lot, a lot of big commitment. And I guess there is money in it. Now, do you self publish the books? Yes. Well, so I was uh, in a publishing deal um, with my music and, and it, I learned a lot about how um, it's it, you know it can be not that great because the the publisher really takes the money mm -hmm. and so I was wasn't interested in that with my either of my books um, and so I have the, a fan base like you do and I I um, you know I have mailing list and and I'm, I'm connected to them and so um, I wanted to make sure that all the money 
from them came to me. Mm-hmm. You know, after that, like now, now that that all my fans have bought it, and I'm I'm you know in my second printing and all that, I would consider letting a publisher have it. But I didn't want to give them my fans money. I I feel like they should go find me an audience. They shouldn't just take the audience the money from the audience that I found. And that's what I learned in the music business. Right. Right. You've always been in the folk world. You've always been a, you have to be very entrepreneurial to be successful. Would you agree? Yes. Actually, maybe when I write again, I might write about that, like the the way that I was able to carve out a career, not doing anything that you're supposed to do or, you know what I mean? Like just doing it, thinking out of the box. I I was blessed by marrying McDermott the same way you were actually. Um, um, And she's, my wife sat me down early and said, you I'll tolerate this, you know, you being gone and me shoveling and raising these kids and you, you know, doing your day job and then running out and doing music. But as soon as you see a dollar, get it and bring it here and put it on this kitchen table. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I felt like that was been my part of the deal. And, yeah. um, and so I, I always was thinking about um, how, how can this next thing that I'm doing bring some money home, at least grocery money. You know, something. Right. Sure. So when you say you were thinking out of the box, Don, give me an example of that. How does how does a folk singer think or how did you think out of the box and able to carve out a career in an unconventional way? Well, the first thing is that I I just made a list of all the things I had no control over and eliminated them. And that was what a record company thinks, what a radio station thinks, what people who don't know me. I just did, I just stopped putting energy into trying to book myself into places where nobody knew me. And I just thought, what do I have control of? And the only thing I could think of was I have control over what happens between me and who's ever in the audience. So mm-hmm. I just concentrated on making fans mm-hmm. um, and making fans and keeping in touch with them, getting their mailing, their emails and all that. Yep. And then um, – I, I just thought this is where I have control. I didn't ignore the other things, but I put my primary focus on building a fan base. And once I had that, then uh, other things were available to me. Venues were more interested in me because I had a fan base. Right. Um, uh, I, and I could bring people out. Uh, uh, record companies were interested in me because I could show that I sold so many CDs. You know, I just felt like, I didn't have unlimited energy. I had two kids and I was working two jobs at the time. And so I had to make the most out of what I did and um, dedicating the energy to toward building fans uh, turned out in the long term to be the, the, the thing that helped me have a sustaining career. Right. It's a very smart business move because, I mean, that's what companies do. They're trying to get uh, a customer that stays with them, not just for one purchase, but for the next 10 years, next 20 years for life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, the, the, no fans, no career, you know, in, in music, Yeah, you know, in comedy, you can have like a sort of a club career, you know, because they just put the word comedy on the door mm-hmm. and, and people will come and take a gamble on it. But that's true. But, uh, but um, but in music, that's not going to. You put folk music on the door. <laughs> Some guy walking down the street. You're not going to be. You're not going to be turning them away. <laughs> right. I love the joke that you said. It's an old joke, but how do you make a million dollars in folk music? You want me to answer it? Yeah. You start out with two million. 
Yeah, that's that that joke. I think is attributable to Utah Phillips, actually, the late great Utah. Phillips. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it in theater too, but I I I think it's the same kind of thing. You know, people make all these investments in and there's my new play and then it doesn't go anywhere and no one sees your new play they should marry a, a woman from who grew up in the projects who's not going to tolerate you not being gone and not bringing back money right so, that's the answer to that pro- that problem you'll never have to deal with that if, you know if there's somebody with their hand on her hip tapping her foot when you come in the door with no money you know <laughs> that's the truth don so in terms of uh and I love what you did well let's just talk about a little bit about so you 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 concentrated on creating fans getting email lists mailing addresses did you book yourself as well did you ever rent out theaters uh, or clubs yeah, or, yeah. right I, I really knew that I couldn't wait around for the clubs to to discover me it was too I'd never work at the beginning yeah. you know and um, I also knew this would, I think is good advice for young young people is that you can push a venue into booking you. Mm-hmm. Like if you bother passing them enough, they'll hire you. But then when only 20 people come, you can never get back in the room. They just print out a piece of paper and hand it to you later and say, this is what you did last time. You know, yeah. this is a business. We you know, can't. So I, I thought, wait, wait till I can fill the rooms to do it. So, yeah, I would. I bought a sound system. I, I, I told my fans that I would play wherever they were. You know, uh, you know, they wouldn't think of it if they see me at a big venue. Like I used to play the Somerville Theater every year, and that's mm-hmm. a thousand seats. And somebody in that audience wouldn't think that I'd play in their barn or their living room or their backyard, um, especially back then before house concerts. But, um, but, but, but that's how I filled it in. I filled, and then raising money too, something that you do. Yeah. You know, um, if you collaborate with some group that's trying to raise money. And some percentage of the people come to support the cause and some people come because they know you. So it's a good for everybody. Yeah. And you get a fresh audience too. <clears throat> you get um, people in the crowd that don't know you that you can make fans of if you, uh, <laughs> if you don't suck as they yeah. say. <laughs> no, if you deliver it, if yeah, you just right. deliver and they have a good time and it's for a good cause, that's, that's a great way to do it. You know, you talked about the comedy scene and sometimes they'll come to the comedy venue. That's true. But more and more because of the social media and because of all the digital tools that we have, you can really create an enormous career uh, if you're, you know, pretty good and hustle at it and get the right people and you have the right clips and things like that. You can – it's much more of the artist uh, – we have much more control than we ever did before, both comics and, and musicians. You know, I agree with that. I, people say that it's a harder now, and maybe it is in some ways, but it's better in a lot of ways too. But it all comes down to how hard are you going to work mm-hmm. and how smart are you going to work? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other things I thought about was I can't be good at everything. I can't be the best guitar player and the best singer and the best storyteller and all that. I just thought, where is the most, where is the least competition? And I thought, you know, guitar players, Berkeley School of Music is churning them out by the hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so there's a lot of competition there. But I thought maybe if I was funny, you know, if I, if I, yeah. if my comedy chops were up and, um, and that if I wrote songs that didn't sound like everybody else, let me put my energy there so that when people finally come to me, that, uh, 
it'll be something that they can't find somewhere else. Like if they like what I'm doing, it will be different. It won't, um, you know? Yeah. So oh, I mean, definitely. it's a long, it's a slow burn. You know, it takes, takes, takes a decade for that to, to amount to anything. But, right. but once it does, they stay with you. Yeah. Folks, if you haven't seen Don's shows, um, I highly recommend it. It's, they're funny. They're very moving. His songs are really funny. They can be. They can be really moving, which they are. They're uh, important. He, you know, he's uh, he usually has a point to what he's doing. He's got a huge heart. That's why he's always so has been so successful with working with nonprofits and fundraisers and things like that, food pantries and all of that. And it's all at donwhite.net. You can get in touch with them. He's got, like he said, many, many CDs. Are they all digital, di- digitally available as well, Don? Uh, you know, it's less and less now, but, uh, but there's three that are still available out there and probably, probably half of them where you can still find out there and mm-hmm. a few you can buy in a hard copy. But Jimmy, I want to talk about something that you just brought up, if that's okay. Sure. But, yeah. I, I I love the idea, and this is something that when I first met you at Catch a Rising Star, it probably was 91 or something like that, mm-hmm. we talked about the idea of not having to be funny every minute and, yeah. being, and finding an audience that will let you go someplace other than joke, yeah. joke, you know, like that. And um, uh, so my feeling is that... Um, the compartmentalizing of like poets over here and folk yeah. singers over here and comedians over here, that that was a business decision. Like I think in, in Greenwich Village in the 60s, as I understand it, you could go see a show and it would have a poet and a folk singer and a comedian. Theoretically, you could have seen Lenny Bruce and Ferlinghetti and, you know, Bob Dylan all yeah. in one night. And the audience was okay with that. But then somebody... Some businessman said, club owner said, you know, if we get rid of this poet and these, you know, we can have a comedy club and make more money. But I don't think that that people, um, as long as the quality of what you're doing is good, then they like to go back and forth between being funny and and being emotional. Nobody ever told Charlie Chaplin that he couldn't be serious and funny in a movie. You know, have you ever seen that movie, The Kid, with Jackie Cooper as a little kid in it? That thing is will is funny, so so funny it will you make you fall off the chair, and then it will rip your heart out. Mm. You know, and so I, I'm I I stick to that. I stick to the idea that a complete evening for someone who comes to see me is mostly funny. Mostly, you know, we want to have a nice time out, but strategically there should be things to think about. You know, there should be things that move you, make you think about your mom, something, right? Yeah. Um, you know, not just that, just the quality can't fall off. You can't have right. great comedy and weak, serious things. You know, right. that that's kind of the trick there. Right. And I would say there's a lot more latitude for that mixing it up serious and funny in music than there is in quote comedy because comedy is comedy. And if it's not, if the sentences are not ending in a, a laugh <laughs> and if you're not eliciting laughter, uh, then it's not really comedy. But what we, you were so helpful with me is that I was, I really was attracted to the one-person show format as well. I was talking to Colin about this last week. I just liked the whole up and down, the roller coaster of emotions, the commentary, combining it with the humor, combining it with making points or trying to, and uh, and combining it with um, you know the, the serious 
the seriousness of life, but also the humor and the spirituality of life and, uh, and the activism of, of, of getting involved and trying to do something and not just talking about things, but trying to actually, you know, affect change where you can in a simple way of, or how you can. So, and you were great with that because when I first met Don was at Catch a Rising Star and he was doing the open mic nights. Oh, they had a different, they had a, uh, an eclectic night, didn't they? They had Robin Horton was trying to make it music and comedy. And he was trying to do the Greenwich Village thing there. Right. 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 Yeah, and I and I I was in the comedy like I learned comedy chops. I would be on the bill with people, you know, so I had to be funny. Yeah, and I learned, but just what you said that these people aren't going to tolerate me not being funny. It says comedy above the door here, right? <laughs> um, so, so I took a you know I I learned a lot. Yeah, um, but but I um, I like now what you said that where I where I can be free to go as many places as possible. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would add to what you said, the list of things, you know, um, that you can do in a show. I think the, the one that that's the most powerful, which, which um, is, is, it's not obvious, but, but it, it, it stays with people the most in these times, especially. And I see you do this a lot and I, I do it. And that is hope. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. um, if, if the underlying message is hope, you know, we, you know, other people have had harder times than this and, and things, things turned around for them. Um, they don't, they don't understand it. Like they don't, they don't come away thinking that it just kind of slips in. If you're, if you're a hopeful artist, yeah. if you're a hopeful person, you know, if you're, if you, you know, if you're looking toward the positive, then, then that people are drawn to that, whether they know it or not. Yeah, I agree. And people need it. Because, I mean, if you're doing political satire, which is one of my stronger suits, but I just over the last couple of years, the country's so divided, I don't want to make it worse. You know, I just did a show at the Wembley Theater in Boston over the holidays. And the name of it was Humor and Hope for the Holidays. Mm -hmm. And my personal unspoken mantra uh operating principle was number one first like a doctor first do no harm okay <laughs> don't make it, do no harm and number two don't make it worse <laughs> everybody's bummed out every but between the election and the wars and the this and the that and the covid and the climate everybody is on edge don't make it worse. Just, just make them laugh and and bring some hope and some and some joy. And that's what really what I tried to do. And that's what I've been trying to do in my shows. I uh, love that about you. Uh, yeah. I'm something that you know it's, it's it's why we're still friends. Is that you're yeah. always doing things for the right reason and cause no cause no harm. That's the that's a great great <laughs> the great thing to bring over from the medical industry into the exactly the, the, the Hippocratic oath, the comedic oath. <laughs> First, do no harm. <laughs> and don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the other thing, Don, I loved, and you were so gracious with your generosity of advice about venues to go to that were not, quote, comedy clubs and small venues. In the folk scene, I was really able to play like a, a jazz club and you can play a folk club or you can play a rock club or you can play a comedy club, you know, or a theater where you can play different different types of venues and so when i when i met you and we used to go to brother blues open mic nights the yeah. great poet street performer mm -hmm. brother blue and sure. uh 
Tim Mason and uh, the O Vienna Coffee House and all those folk clubs that I was gonna, I was able to, uh, I was able to get get into and play because they wanted things that were both funny but also had a serious element to it. So it opened up a whole new, a whole nother dimension to me. So, just on a business level, I remember thinking about. Of being happy that I was funny, that I was funny. And and I was just thinking in a business sense, like how do I make the most fans, you know? And um, people will say, I don't think that's funny. I'm sure you've heard it in your life. I've heard <laughs> it. <funny. laughs> but they won't, nobody will say, I don't like to laugh, right? So right. If, if what you're doing, especially early in the show, when you're trying to make friends with people, when you're trying to make them relax, you know, if, if that material doesn't, anger them or make them tight or you know what if 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 that material is um is friendly i guess you know and it, and then the audience for it is every living person um right so mm-hmm. nobody will say i don't like to laugh they will say i don't like jazz but i like folk music they will say i don't like that kind of humor but everybody if you can figure out how to be funny in a way that doesn't tighten them up the audience is unlimited it's every living person. And I thought about that a great deal when I was thinking about how, how to present my show. You know, if, if, if your grandmother and the grandson are all laughing at it, that's, that's, a, that's, a, you know, that's a lot of audience there. I think. Yes, definitely. And you'll have people that come to your shows that have been with you 20, 30 years, and they'll bring their kids, right? <laughs> I know. Or their parents. <laughs> Yeah, or the, or the, 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 this beautiful 25-year-old woman come up to me, Don White, my father used to sing me to sleep with your songs when I was five years old. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> is, it, is it Thursday? Thursday is Jello day. I want Jello. <laughs> right. I had a woman, I used to, I go into the comedy studio, you know, and there oh, it's a yeah. younger crowd. It's like all twenties. And one woman came up to me and she goes, Jimmy Tingle, I have to tell you, my grandmother loves you. <laughs> <laughs> she was dead serious. Wasn't trying to be sarcastic. My grandmother just loves you. <laughs> yeah. See, you should have told her you could be her grandfather. <laughs> How much does she love me? <laughs> What's her name? Never mind. Don't tell me <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it is pretty funny but it's it's also great to be able to do what we're, we're doing uh for 20 30 40 years you know it's and, a privilege it's um, a i wanted privilege. to ask you uh what is the name of the first book and what is the name of the second book so the first book is called memoirs of a c student okay um and that's been around a long time the second book is called the hitchhiking years and yep. uh, and four other stories, and that's it's a it's a book about half of this book is about the fact that my wife and I left home in Lynn, Massachusetts, when we graduated high school, and hitchhiked for three years. Wow! And it shaped us and changed us, and um, and it was really fun to write about. It's it's like a time that was like we hitchhiked to Alaska. We estimate around sixty thousand miles we hitchhiked. Wow! And we and we. Our brains were formed, we were young, um, on the kindness of strangers. Mm. We couldn't move an inch without a stranger being kind to us. And so now when people tell me that there is no kindness in the world, I 
I can't, I don't buy it. I, I always think like my dad, my dad would say, what's the math on this? So let's say somebody does something murderous out in the Western part of the state, kills their family, some horrible thing like that. My dad would say they send a um, camera crew from, from Boston to film the, the horrible thing that happened in the Western part of the state. How many houses did they pass that nobody did anything bad in? Mm-hmm. You know, a million, five million. So five yeah. million to one is what the math is on that. Doesn't mean the bad thing didn't happen. It just means that if you're just looking at it on TV or on your scroll, they'll make you think that that's all that's happening. And the math is the opposite of that. Right. And there's a ton of kindness out there in the world and strangers. You can't be naive, but um, so it's an interesting. It was interesting to write, and a lot of people are responding to it. Um, young people and all kinds of old hippies who hitchhiked and all that stuff. So. Uh-huh. That's great, Don. What year was that that you went, or what years were you hitchhiking? It was um, between 1975 and 1979. So we'd go for a year at a time, then come home and save money and go again. Yeah. So I, um, three years. Yeah. Did you actually make it to Alaska? Yeah, we hitchhiked the Alcan Highway when it was all dirt. The whole 1,400 miles of dirt road. Like, I was there, just- Don. I was, I, I hitchhiked, I tried, I wanted to hitchhike to Alaska. I was telling my friends, I, I want to find Bigfoot. And, <laughs> and I was c- convinced that I would cat Bigfoot, maybe work on the pipeline up there, the Alaskan pipeline. It, it was still going then, 75. Yeah. yeah. So this was 77. And I, so I said, I'm hitchhiking to Alaska. And I left from Somerville, right? I was across the street from the, my brother bought. And I was also trying to quit drinking and tr- quit using pot. I said, I got to get out of Cambridge. There's too much alcohol. There's too much pot. I got to get out of here. So I said, I'm going to hitchhike to Alaska. So my brother Bobby drops me off across the street from the Mystic Ave housing projects with a, the on-ramp to um, 93 North, right? I got a big backpack. I got a fishing rod. I got one of those hats with the mosquito. Keto net over the head, <laughs> and I and I got. He gives me an ounce of pot for the road. <laughs> I couldn't turn it down. I couldn't get. I got to stone him before I started smoking. <laughs> how, far, how far did you go? Stone him. <laughs> no, we eventually. I mean, I went up. I got all the way to. Uh, uh, Prince Rupert, Prince oh, Rupert. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Now I don't. Prince Rupert, I think, is Vancouver. I don't think it's Alaska. Yeah, that's in uh, in British Columbia. Yeah, right, British Columbia. The ferries were on strike. That's mm-hmm. why I didn't get up to Alaska. I had a choice. I could go to take the ferry up to Alaska or go that 1,600-mile dirt highway, right? And I said, I don't know how many people are going to be out on a dirt road <laughs> to pick me up. But I, I elected to go to the ferries, and when I got up there, they were on strike, so I, I could never technically get in, into Alaska. But um, but it was an interesting time, and it was a safer time. And I think what screwed it up is like your father's philosophy, you know, like, okay, all of a sudden, people started hitchhiking and started disappearing, right? <laughs> and and when that happened, you know, not, I mean, talking the late 70s, you know, and then yeah. it started, people were afraid and people wouldn't pick people up. And that's what, that's what wrecked it. 
I don't know about that. I mean, I've, you know, I've had to do a ton of research on this. I get uh, emails from kids now who do it. Oh, like really? They do it in, in Alaska and Hawaii and places like that. And it's yeah. funny. It's interesting. They, they take a photograph of the license plate and they send it to their mother. So every oh. car that they're in, somebody knows where they are. It's yeah. like technology. We didn't have none of that. I, I, I think you shouldn't do it if you don't have to. And I wouldn't recommend anyone did it. But I... I think you could do it and be okay. You can't be naive. That's all. You yeah. can't, you, like, we, you know, uh, I'll send you a copy of the book. You can, like, we had, like, these, like, little rules about who got in first and who not to get in with and just stuff that yeah. you learned growing up in Lynn about, you know, being careful about who you're right. around. That's yeah. all. Mostly just kindness. And right. that's the thing. But it was, at the time, it was very socially acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. You get let off on a ramp and there'd be 20 other people there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, that there was, those are some good times. Those. Are, so I got to get the book. I got to get the book. Yeah, so where can up. people get the book? Uh, DonWhite.net. DonWhite.net. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So Don, um, let's see. Anything else you want to say? Nope, uh, March 9th at the Bull yep. Run, already 100 tickets sold. So um going to be a really good fun night. My son's going to be there, a bunch of my friends sitting in with me. It's like a party. Yep. All right, March 9th, the Bull Run and Shirley Don White's annual birthday bash. You check them out, folks. It's going to be a blast. It'll be family and friends. If you've never seen Don, I highly recommend them. You will laugh. You will, you will feel better. You really will. And uh, you'll feel better about humanity, and you'll feel better about being in Shirley, Massachusetts at the, at, at the Bull Run. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a great place. They got great food. You can get there early, have dinner. It's a super place. The people are wonderful, very friendly. It's a great place. And Shirley, Mass is awesome as well. Let me just put a plug in for Shirley yeah. as well. And it's not that far from Boston. What's it, about 30 miles? I think maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's a great place. DonWhite.net. You can get his book. You can get tickets to all his shows, his CDs, his DVDs. Get on his mailing list and uh, stay in touch with him. He's one of the best and he's one of a kind. And uh, I, I'm proud to call him my friend. He really helped me a lot in a lot of ways. And I so appreciate it, Don. Right back at you, Jimmy. <laughs> 